Full Court Fits is The Ringer's new weekly NBA video series hosted by Big Waz, a.k.a. Wozni Lambre. Each week, we take you around the world of NBA fashion and share can't-miss style choices from your favorite players and keep you up to date on the latest news and releases in sneaker culture. Waz also talks to experts like Damian Lillard's personal stylists to give you behind-the-scenes looks at how the NBA's biggest stars choose their outfits. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you're subscribed to The Ringer's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Ringer so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello, TJF. Yeah, uh, I found out it was Friday about 27 (laughs) minutes ago. So here we go. Uh, Speaking of people learning things, the Cubs have thrown a no hitter. uh, The latest in a long string of no hitters in uh in this season so or this not even half a season of major league baseball so far uh it's the first combined no hitter uh and none of the three cubs relief pitchers who took part in this game knew it was a no hitter until the game was over i don't blame them (laughs) this was probably the least exciting no hitter i can recall without getting into the whole are no hitters good conversation or are we tired of no hitters because there have been seven or eight depending on how you define them this season but this one was a a combined no hitter which is never nearly as fun and b there were eight walks i mean there were base runners in almost every inning so i can understand why they forgot that a no hitter was going on it was eight walks combined for the pitchers the most since edwin jackson walked eight in his no hitter against tampa uh, 11 years ago and it's hard to overstate how differently i feel about how awesome that Edwin Jackson no-hitter was like to walk eight but still get a no-hitter is so cool, such an extreme, versus this one where the team walked eight and it was combined. Like The level of enthusiasm I have for those two games could not be more disparate. Yeah, half the fun of a no-hitter really is about watching that pitch count climb, right? And wondering if the guy is going to get to stay in the game, which is far from a guarantee now. We had multiple pitchers pulled from no-hitters, including in that game on Thursday. So that's part of it. And then also you have the fatigue effect and familiarity and the times to the order and all of that. So 
hitters get multiple cracks at the same pitcher. And so it feels like a a real endurance effort and feat if you actually pull it off. But if you're talking about multiple pitchers and fresh arms coming in, then that is not nearly as interesting to me and clearly was not all that interesting to the Cubs either. I was watching the end of that game and wondering if they would celebrate. Like, I forgot what the etiquette was for combined no-hitters. And in this case, the pitchers didn't even know. Kimbrell didn't even know that it was a no-hitter. You could see it sort of dawn on him a while after he got the final out. And so there was this very half-hearted, like, the team came out of the dugout and onto the field, but there was no real mob or pile up on the mound. It was like obligatory. Well, I guess we threw a new hitter, so we should probably celebrate somehow. But you could tell that the enthusiasm just wasn't the same. I'm going to stick up for combined no hitters here for two reasons. One, I, I, it's surprising to me that we've gotten this far into into no hitter season, the season of the no hitter. And this is the first combined no hitter. I remember a few years ago, uh, I think it was Patrick Dubuque from BP was saying, I don't know why people are complaining about combined no hitters. Like they all won't be combined no hitters in a couple years. And that hasn't really come to sorry to bring up Patrick just to tell him he was wrong about something. I guess it happens from time to time, but, but like the point stands that we should be seeing more of these. And I think that there's jeopardy that comes, in addition to like the normal fatigue of the starter, you're bringing in some other dude out of the bullpen who might not be as sharp. I think there is that risk, even if I agree the drama isn't that great. The second thing is it sucks when everything is good in the same way. So I'm on the record as a huge fan of Tropicana Field because it like it's weird and crappy, but it's not like any other stadium in Major League Baseball. And like everybody's talking about like everybody loves the the damn uh, Pittsburgh Stadium. And like it's exactly like every other park that's been built since 1991. And if you've seen one, you've seen most of them. And so we need something a little weird and a little like like to provide a contrast, provide a little bit of variety. Otherwise, we're all living this homogenized uh, you know, mid-sized SUV where the Hyundais look like the the Nissans look like the Fords and, and everybody looks the same and we're all living in a Radiohead video. And this is, I see Bobby's camera turning on. This is never a good sign when Bobby turns his camera on while I'm in the middle of a rant. The third part is that no combined no hitters are some of the most memorable no hitters. You Like the, the Astros one with Kirk Sarlis where Roy Oswalt got hurt, the Angels uh, combined no hitter, uh, the, uh, right after Tyler Skaggs died, like they can be special in their own way. And I'm not saying this one's going to go down as a, as a classic, but I, I think we should cherish the, the combined no hitters as well as the virtuoso individual performance. I think there's something disconcertingly libertarian about this bent of analysis, Ben. <laughs> I don't think it was a virtuoso performance. It would be one thing oh, if they no, weren't walking the ballpark. Oh, no, it was absolutely not a virtuoso performance. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm saying it I should be nonetheless. Like if you have a, a bunch of pitchers who are passing the baton and it's like a, a team effort and they're all great and they're all pulling toward a combined goal, in this case, they didn't even realize that they had that goal or, the, or what they had accomplished until after the fact. So it's hard for me to be excited about something that the team itself was it's not excited just hard enough for to you notice to be excited in the moment. About anything. <laughs> that too, but particularly this. Mike, I have two questions for you based on those points you made. Number one, are you saying you would rather watch a game at Tropicana than PNC? Yeah, 100%. Okay. That's fair. Number two, you. And, and here's here's the other thing: air conditioning. 
<laughs> Number two, you say the Astros no-hitter was really memorable when Oswald got hurt and Starless pitched. Can you name, if it was so memorable, the pitcher who threw the most innings in that game for Houston? Did Octavio Dotel get two innings in that he game? He threw one he inning. Threw one inning. Uh, Lich threw in that game. Oh, God. Brandon Backey? Brandon Backey. The answer is threw- the Pete Monroe. Okay. Which I say to Says point out more that, about Pete Monroe that than that. No, this game was not particularly memorable is the point I am trying to make. I had to look that up, too. And I think, yes, like this no hitter is going to be more memorable than the average four zero ball game, probably. But it is not going to be more memorable than any of the other no hitters I've already seen this year. Yeah, I don't know. That I necessarily disagree with that. I'm just saying it's but it's more memorable than your average four nothing ball game. I can't believe in a in a rant defending Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, and Craig Kimbrell, you somehow brought up Nissan, Hyundai, and Radiohead, and it kind of actually and the Trop, and it kind of actually made sense. That wasn't the reason I turned on my camera, though, Bowman. I loved that roller coaster rant. The reason I turned on my camera was because I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think is like the the least amount of pitches that a manager can let? a pitcher throw before it's insulting. So Davies <laughs> threw 94 pitches in this game. With a no-hitter? Not even letting him cross 100. With a no-hitter, not even letting him cross yeah. 100. That's pretty low. So is that like insulting to the pitcher? I don't think anybody thought he was going to finish it, but you're at least supposed to like give it the old college try, no? I think this far into the season, I think uh, I think Barrios, that first week of the season when he and Burns were throwing dueling no-hitters, I think he came out before that, but that's like... They're still getting ramped up this far in the season. 94 is pushing it. That might be like that might be the answer to the least amount of pitches you can let a pitcher throw before it becomes insulting. Right. And he threw he threw six innings. So say he gets a really quick inning the next like a seven or eight pitch inning. And he's just hovering around 100 with two innings left to go. You got to let him try, right? At least (laughs) let him get up the hit. That's the thing, though. I feel like you have to rip the Band-Aid off and pull the pitcher earlier because the closer he gets to the no-no, the harder it gets to pull him and the more mad he's going to be about it. And so if you look at the pitch count and you know that unless he gets all one pitch outs for a couple innings, he's just not going to make it, then maybe it's better to pull him before he gets his hopes up and not have to do it when he's only a few outs away. I feel like David Ross gets a mulligan because he walked five guys and only struck out four. Like, if your walk... (laughs) You know, if your strikeout to walk ratio is negative, then or less than one, I should say, you don't get to be mad. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Let's see. Other fun fact about this game. The first time Albert Pujols has been no hit in 2,915 career games. Uh, I don't know if that's memorable, but or if that's notable or if that's unusual, but that's a big number. Uh, I don't know if like the law of averages says that he should have been no hit before or after, but that just, you know, it felt worth mentioning to me he made it a lot harder for teams to no hit him for at least half of those games <laughs> i guess true. not so much for the and latter half. the other half he was playing with trout <laughs> yeah right yeah well at least we know now that removing the sticky stuff doesn't mean that there will automatically be hits in every game i think batters uh, collectively produced a 234 batting average on thursday so who knew maybe it wasn't just the sticky stuff all right we're We'll get back to the sticky stuff in a second. Uh, the other big news since we last talked, Wander Franco, the number one prospect in baseball, made his major league debut. And what a debut, a double home run, a nifty double play uh, in a uh, dramatic uh, Rays-Red Sox game on Tuesday night. He was not eligible 
you remember a couple weeks ago when the three of us uh, spent an hour and change yelling at each other. He was not eligible for our top 25 under 25 list because he hadn't made his major league debut. Where would he end up on your list if we did that today? Zach. So listeners might recall that we all had the same top four just in a different order. That was Soto, Tatis, Acuna, and Vlad Jr. And then we all had Bobachet number five and then different players six and onward. I think given Franco's age and his prospect type and the fact that people who follow prospects for a living say he is one of the best prospects in recent memory, I think I would probably place him fifth just ahead of Bichette. That sounds aggressive, and maybe he could be well, that's, higher that's by the end of That's ahead of Jared season. Kelnick, which is apparently <laughs> a, a big deal for you guys. He was ahead of Jared Kelnick on prospect list, too. That matters, and, and I think his age matters. And even though Bichette has been very successful at the big league level now, he's three years older. And I think if you're projecting rest of career forward, that's the line I would draw. I'm just surprised Bauman didn't leave the Zoom because Cram suggested that he could be better than Ian Anderson. I think he's going to be better than Ian Sanchez Anderson for too. that matter. Yeah. yeah. Well, he hasn't I faced Sixto what... <laughs> Sanchez yet, so that remains to be seen. I forget what my list was, but it was somewhat similar to Zach's, and I think I would probably put Franco in just about the same place. I don't know if I'd go ahead of or or behind Bichette. I guess we would both have to elevate him over our favorite Grisham, right? Which would be difficult to do, but I think you you got to do it. Given how aggressive we were with Kelnick, we have to be appropriately aggressive with Franco, and he just seems like much more of a, a can't-miss prospect who has a, a higher floor and a similarly high ceiling, as he showed really already. Like you could see the power and you can see the patience, which is kind of his calling card. And that's shown up right away. And he also doesn't look 20. I mean, he is more physically mature, certainly, than I was at 20 when I looked about 13. So I think that, you know, you can tell that he has put on some pounds and and bulked up a bit. And even though he's not a huge guy, he's listed at 5'10", he clearly has some power. So he's not just all plate discipline. Yeah, and at the same time, he's still nimble enough. Like, you look at 20-year-old shortstops, you know, I think of, of like Carlos Correa when when he came up. Like, I looked at him and thought, future future third baseman. And I've talked about that on the show over and over and over. And he's turned out to be a better defensive shortstop than I thought. But Franco's lighter on his feet. He's got a strong arm. I think he's going to be, he's going to stick at that position for a while. It's hard not to get carried away with Ben, like you said, the, the combination of, of patience and power and hit tool at this young age. Like that's, I mean, it's the, one of the best uh, indicators of whether a player is going to make the hall of fame. It's whether he hits a home run in the majors by age, like 19 or 20, right? Like, I don't know the, the exact numbers aren't right in front of me, but it's, it's a huge percentage of, of players who came up and did what, what Franco's done at that age go on to become like generational superstars. And so it like, it feels irresponsible to put him in the top five after how many games has he even played two, three, uh, three games in the big leagues. But that's like, that's what the, the, the numbers and, and the analysis from people who know more about this stuff than we do, like that, it bears that out. Yeah. And I think, not that we looked at this as a, a trade value ranking just because we didn't consider contracts or anything. Well, but we might as well, because 
Bronco's going to get expensive in a couple years. Is that, <laughs> did I step on your your? Well, I, I was going to say right now, the Rays wouldn't even consider trading him for basically everyone else we talked about on the list. And yes, in a couple of years, once he hits his arbitration, maybe that will change. But I don't know if we if we do 25 under 25 rankings for the next four years, Franco, I would imagine, would stay in the top five every one of those seasons. Yeah, really, I guess the only knock is that he's not an elite defender and given just how much depth the Rays have in the infield. I mean, they're trading infielders to make room for infielders and they still have infielders stuck behind other infielders who recently made their major league debut. And it doesn't seem like that Franco is the best of them defensively. Taylor Walls already seems pretty elite at that position. So that may mean that he's pushed over to third. You know, there's just a lot of traffic there. Like he has to hit to stick right now. And long term, I don't think there's any cause for concern about him hitting. But does he end up at the premium defensive position where with some other teams, he would probably have a, a clear road ahead of him? Or does he have to shift over to a spot where maybe he can stick longer, but doesn't provide quite as much defensive value? So that's really, I guess, the only quibble, but it's a, a tiny one. Yeah, I think the just I think the, the I think he's better defensively than Alex Bregman was at this point in his career. And Bregman was a guy who was going to be in the middle infield if the Astros didn't have Altuve and Correa blocking him there. Um, and I think like the reasonable worst case scenario is like, good defensive second baseman or third baseman for the the next few years. You know, maybe he turns into Miguel Cabrera or whatever and has to move to a corner. Uh, but I think we're still a ways down the road as far as that goes. All right, let's go back to sticky substances. We are living in the age of, of the clean fingers for, uh, for major league baseball's pitchers as of, as of this week. And, uh, speaking of clean fingers, uh, no less an authority than Dr. Ruth Westheimer has weighed in on on Major League Baseball's uh, latest controversy. She says foreign substances may not be allowed in baseball, but in the bedroom, some added lubrication might be just the thing needed to improve your sex life. Play ball. She said this uh, or she tweeted this with a link to a New York Post story about Ben, uh, a player that Ben has a close personal relationship with Shohei Otani. Uh, this comes on the heels of Sergio Romo taking off his pants during uh, an inspection for for foreign substances uh, in a game on Tuesday night. My question to two people who I think are really well positioned to answer this question, and we'll start with you, Zach. Is baseball becoming dangerously horny? So I think uh, I'm going to preface this statement by saying I think the the kinks in this initial don't kink shame. Uh, so to speak. <laughs> I think I think the kinks in this first week of substance testing will be worked out by then. But Tuesday night, I tried to imagine what would happen if a kind of casual baseball fan who typically only tunes in for the playoffs turns on the TV in October only to see pitchers taking off their pants. I don't think this will happen by then. I think the 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 method and the logistics by which umpires check will be smoothed out by then. But what will happen? Because like we kind of knew this was coming, maybe not to this extent, but I think we can all adjust to this pretty quickly when we're watching hours of baseball every night. But for the average fan who doesn't typically tune in to the regular season, will that be really strange to see just like, all right, NLDS game one, here are the pitchers lining up and taking off their pants. I think it's going to have a lot to do with how <laughs> weird John Smoltz makes it. 
he's going to have a lot of power <laughs> when the when the time comes. I mean, Joe Bu- Joe Buck, we know has uh, a pit. Joe Buck's going to have Joe a lot Bucks of has fun opinions on athletes taking off their pants off mid game, or even <laughs> pantomiming that. taking off their pants off mid game. A despicable act. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is a, a feature, not a bug. If anything, I mean, it's it's horny, yes, but dangerously horny. No, are we so puritanical that we're worried about the children because some pitchers are taking their pants off? Let baseball be sex positive. We've got banging schemes. We've got sticky stuff. Now we've got strip searches. So hoardiness could be good for the game. Maybe this is what baseball needs to court that young audience. And really, I'd rather read about pitchers stripping than gambling lines and crypto partnerships, which seems to be most of what MLB is pushing these days. And this really didn't bother me at all because everyone made a big stink about the Romo incident and the scherzer Girardi incident, which we can talk about. But that's kind of it, right? I mean, we're, what, four, five days into this now, and we've seen hundreds of inspections And almost all of them have been totally routine and unremarkable and have taken place between innings and no one has even noticed and they haven't slowed the game down. And most people have gone about the inspections the way Shohei Otani did, totally wholesomely and unbuckling with a smile. So really, we're talking two pitchers out of dozens or hundreds. And I think some amount of awkwardness was inevitable in week one of going from no enforcement to full enforcement. But by the time we get a few weeks into this, I wouldn't expect that there will be anything amiss. And you won't see pitchers getting pissed about this because it'll just be the new normal and they'll just go about their business. To put it another way, you won't see pitchers getting the ass about this. <laughs> I think no. the the first exception we saw to that, that norm, Ben, was Scherzer versus Girardi. And that was a perfect example i think of what we've talked about on the show before dumb baseball disagreements like nobody was actually getting hurt here nobody was actually in trouble it was just two guys yelling at each other joe Girardi, a man in his mid-50s challenging someone else to a fight getting ejected max scherzer clearly mocking him after he he strikes someone out i'm sure this will lead to to more fireworks when the phillies and nationals play each other next and that's the kind of thing where as long as like nobody's actually getting hit by a 95 mile an hour fastball as Scherzer said he almost hit Alec Bohm when because he didn't have anything to grip better like as long as that's not actually happening as a result of this feud I am all for like adding ways to increase the amount of dumb drama between division rivals ways for Joe Girardi to try to try to convince people he's hard like he's gonna fight the Nationals Joe Girardi went to Northwestern nobody's scared of Joe Girardi he's a catcher though and I feel like in general, catchers do pretty well in fights. Maybe because they have the the protective gear, but they do pretty well in fights. Look, I'm not a I'm not a tough guy. I'm not a fighter. I'm not scared of anybody who went to Northwest. Joe Girardi or Gabe Kapler, who who takes that one? I feel like Girardi has the grit. Kapler looks like he has a glass jaw. I'll leave it for you guys to decide. You guys, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like nobody has ever looked more like he has a glass jaw. Are you kidding? <laughs> I think this was fun, too. I think it would be bad if this were a common occurrence and you had managers regularly disrupting pitchers' rhythm and trying to screw them up, which there is a provision in the rules that they're not supposed to do that. And I think it was Clayton Kershaw suggested that there should be some penalty. If you do provoke the inspection and there's no sticky stuff found, then you should, I don't know, lose a a replay challenge or some other penalty should be assessed. But 
really, this was just Girardi being Girardi. He is always going to exploit some minuscule, insignificant edge wherever he can. And so in this case, he said that Scherzer was going to his head and his hair more often than he used to, which Scherzer acknowledged because he said he couldn't get a grip and that was the only place he had sweat. So he was doing that which gave Girardi probable cause for something that he was probably looking for a reason to do anyway. So you had a bit of a war of words between him and Girardi and Scherzer and Girardi. And then you had the war of words between Mike Rizzo and Girardi and Dombrowski. So it was happening at multiple levels. You had coaches yelling at each other. This was fun. I agree. This was a a dumb baseball confrontation. And as long as it's not a nightly occurrence, I think this was uh, just to have it be Scherzer and as wild-eyed as he always looks and that repressed energy (laughs) and just looking like he's going to blow up at the slightest provocation. And this was more than the slightest provocation. So I enjoyed it. And Scherzer the next day after Bryce Harper homered saying, check his hair, check his hair. That's like, yeah, that's good stuff. So Ben, you said the batting average league wide on Thursday night was what? Like 234. Uh, Rob Arthur, friend of the show, seems to be uh, of the opinion that this is our that the the crackdown on on sticky substances is already evincing itself in the spin rate numbers and in, and could have a huge like bigger. It seems to it seems that that he thinks the the uh, potential offensive uptick as a result of the crackdown could be bigger than than perhaps we expected. Yeah, I've been fascinated to see what would happen here. It's tough to untangle the effects, and I would urge caution because when we look at just June numbers compared to April and May numbers, or if we drill down to an even smaller sample and just look at since the enforcement started or since the memo came out, like you're definitely going to see an offensive jump. But you would see that in any season when I look back to see the typical leap between April, May and June, like it's pretty significant just as a matter of course, because the weather warms up and the ball starts carrying better. So I think we have to be careful about just drawing the before and after line and saying that it's the sticky stuff. But it also seems like there would inevitably have to be some uptick in offense, even if it didn't really manifest itself on Thursday. I guess even on Thursday, the on-base percentage was 337 or something like that, which is probably better than it would have been before. So I don't see how you can take away 100 or, or more RPM just on a league-wide level and not have that do anything, just if any of the studies and analysis that people have done over the past few years, looking at how spin rate correlates with movement and how that correlates with whiffs and all of that. If there's any substance to that, so to speak, then we should see things. You're on fire today. Yeah. That's like the third time you've done this. Yeah. So to speak is just my go-to joke today. But I think really like we've seen the, the S the RPM and, and the spin rates plunge back to levels that have we haven't seen for a few years now so we've kind of rolled back all of the spin rate gains from the past few seasons and whether that means we'll roll back the strikeout rate too i hope so you know the strikeout rate on thursday going back to that day was 21.5 percent, which seems like that's low compared to where we were early this season so even if we just lopped off a few years of the strikeout rate increases that would be pretty significant, especially because it would have been accomplished without changing any rules or doing anything weird or wacky other than just making people <laughs> adhere to the letter of the law. 
Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of what we've talked about in regards to moving the mound back, where the anticipated result of moving the mound back a foot would basically be to uh, it would be to effectively remove a, a mile an hour or two off of the velocity gains we've seen over the last couple decades. And we've now seen that with respect to spin rates, just without actually changing the rules. So I don't know if this means we don't need to consider any of those other potential rules changes that will obviously be borne out by what happens the rest of the season going forward. But I think it is an encouraging sign even in the early going. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I don't want to take baseball back to the the dark ages, just like make it a little easier for hitters. I think that's all we need to, to throw things back into to some kind of, of balance. Um, yeah. I, one thing I'll push back on is like the weather hasn't changed that much in the past five days. So like insofar as we're drawing conclusions from this small sample of data, there aren't that many confounding variables. Yeah. I, I haven't looked at, uh, the past week or the past five days, I just know, historically speaking, when you compare April and May to June, there usually is a, a pretty significant uptick. So I'd just be careful about where you draw the line or just account for that context. Look at the typical increase that we see at this time of year and then see if it's even bigger than that. And maybe we could attribute that to the sticky stuff. But what we haven't really seen is just total chaos, right? I mean, to listen to some of the pitchers' comments over the past few weeks, you'd think that they were totally incapable of throwing breaking balls or that hitters would be getting plunked left and right. And that hasn't seemed to happen. I mean, watching baseball this week has looked more or less like baseball. <laughs> I, I haven't seen an enormous uptick in hit by pitches. I haven't looked at the numbers yet and drilled down in detail because, again, we're talking about small samples here, but it's not as if we have suddenly gone to like total lack of control and the ball is just flying in random directions. I think it turns out that pitchers probably are capable of throwing some strikes and throwing pitches with just rosin and, and some mud on the ball. So that was what I was curious about coming into this was how much of the complaining that pitchers were doing about this was just going cold turkey, going away from something that they're used to. And when they're saying, oh, I can't pitch like this or it's unsafe how much of that is overblown and just taking a tool away that they had become accustomed to. And early on, at least, all signs are, are pointing to pitchers can still pitch, which I think is good. And we haven't seen like a, a huge rash of Tower Glass now type forearm injuries this week, as far as I'm aware. So no imminent signs of, of disaster as of yet. Have you guys ever tried to walk a cat on a leash because that's sort of what this is like. You put a cat in a harness and the cat will pretend that it can't walk anymore until like in an in a attempt to try to get you to take the harness off. And then the cat will finally figure, oh, I can't walk. I guess I'm not getting out of this. And they'll walk on the leash. And that's sort of what we're going through with pitchers. That it's not that they can't. It's that they don't want to. I think everyone else on this call mm -hmm. is a dog person and they're just happy to yes. walk on leashes all the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's well, not my dog. My dog doesn't really like to walk wow. on leashes either. My dog hates the leash, <laughs> hates being on the leash, Cram. You, yeah. you whiffed one out of three. That's bad. Your, good your dog <laughs> matches you, just doesn't like to walk, doesn't like to leave the house. Yes, very much. <laughs> Ben's so. dog yeah. hates cardio. 
<laughs> yeah, dachshunds, uh, at least in my experience, don't really love Manhattan noise and traffic. But I will be curious to see also whether we'll see some secondary effects, like are certain pitches going to come back into vogue? Again, maybe not, because maybe it turns out that the effects are pretty subtle and that pitchers were either exaggerating the risks or, or they'll be surprised themselves by how they can adapt to these new circumstances. But, you know, will we start to see pitchers throwing fewer four-seamers up in the zone because they no longer look like opti- optimal illusions with super high spin rates? And will they go back to sinkers? And, you know, will certain pitching patterns that were all the rage for the past few years be phased out or dialed back a bit? I don't know whether we'll see that or not. You know, it, it might turn out to be a little less dramatic than we thought. But on the whole, I'm happy that this is happening and I'm not unhappy about the occasional pitcher pantsing. That's that's one thing I'm really. Wait, no, following up with that is going to make it sound like I'm excited about pitchers taking off their pants on the on the field. And that's <laughs> OK to admit that. Yeah, you know. Not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> but uh, I'm excited for this new era. Like, I don't know what this is going to do. That's sort of a, an interesting change. Like, this is just so such a a random thing to be thrown into the middle of a season where we thought that, you know, pitch development, pitcher development was all headed in one direction. And now, you know, as awkward as this rollout is and it's problematic in certain aspects of it are it's introducing an element of unpredictability into a sport that is sometimes far too predictable. And uh, I can't say I'm going to complain about that. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let's go to something. another thing that I know Ben has lots of opinions on. Some All-Star Game news. Uh, so we're going to get, there was no All-Star Game last year, obviously. Uh, but for this year, we're going to get something that I have argued for, for, and I, I've learned recently I'm in the minority. Uh, I've argued for teams to wear the special all-star game batting practice tops, the ones that they wear for uh, for the home run derby and stuff, for them to wear those uniforms on the field during the game. And the monkey's paw has curled shut on this because MLB has, uh, has released the special all-star game uniforms for Colorado, and they are <laughs> awful. Yeah, I usually don't have very strong opinions about uniforms and don't really in this case either, but these are the the new era local caps of uniforms, essentially. They're almost that bad, maybe a little less inaccurate, <laughs> but not really any more aesthetically pleasing. Like all-star game uniforms, not something that I entered this week with a strong opinion on. Like uniforms in general, I just don't have a much of a fashion sense and when it comes to what players wear i i have almost like face blindness but for uniforms so i, I compared <laughs> you to to Wayun from star trek a couple weeks ago and you keep 
you keep steering right into this, having no sense of aesthetics. No, it's true. I, I don't remember uniform numbers, and I rarely remember what uniforms look like. I mean, I know the classics, of course, but in case, unless it's really, really egregiously terrible, it just doesn't affect my enjoyment of the game all that much. But in this case, like, again, I, I haven't even paid close attention to the past few All-Star games. I will to this one just solely because of Otani. But I think otherwise, I, I would not have said that I had a strong preference for what players wear. But I think it does make sense in a national event in an exhibition game, in an event where you're hoping that casual fans will be tuning in or even hardcore fans will be watching teams and players that they are not normally watching, I think it does make some sense to have them wear their own uniforms for their teams so that people can see those teams represented. So you're going in the other direction, right? You're saying that you want all-star threads instead of just a, an amalgamation of the local uniforms, right? So what is your rationale there? You don't think it's more viewer-friendly, more intuitive to have people wear the uniforms that they... No, I, well, it's the way literally every other all-star game on the planet operates, is that you, you, know, you play on a team, you wear the uniforms. So I think, first of all, I think that there's additional merchandising, like it's... I don't care about this from like a revenue standpoint, but like you see it's if you're a fan of Shohei Otani, like maybe you get the the American League jersey. Like, you know, I remember when the World Baseball Classic uh, came out and, you know, I was a, a young Phillies fan. I was like, oh, crap, you know, Chase Utley Team USA jersey. It's, you know, it's it's another thing like that. And I mean, I'll admit. This is a very weak part of my argument. Now, usually I think the all-star game tops look pretty good. Uh, they're usually they're usually connected to the home team's aesthetic. You remember, uh, I guess Ben doesn't, but Zach might remember in Miami a couple years ago when uh, when Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez were in the uh, the home run derby like those special those blue tops for the American League looked really good. Uh and it's it's a, a way to sort of experiment. And I think that it's it's not tied to, you know, 23 teams have to wear red, white and blue. And the Yankees always have to have pinstripes with no number with no no team or no player names on the back. It lets you get a little bit outside the box. And I think it's a, you know, a, a test ground to see what's going to work in the future for the next generation of of regular uniforms. And so I don't know I. I am somebody who cares certainly more than Ben, but I think more than the average person about uniform aesthetics. Uh, and I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm in the minority like that wants to see all-star, you know, all-star players wear all-star uniforms during the all-star game. I did not expect to enter this pod and just hear Mike stick up for MLB merchandise. Got to have more jerseys to sell. I, it felt, it felt bad coming out of my mouth. I'm going to admit that. I am also not a big uniform person. I do think these jerseys look weird and kind of the mock-ups that uh, were tweeted out yesterday because it has the block letters of the team names and also the logo of the team superimposed on top. So like with the Rockies, for instance, who are going to be the host, it says COL in vertical letters and then the the rocky cr logo superimposed on top of that and that looks weird i wasn't sure what it was trying to say same with uh the yankees one was also tweeted out with the nyy and then just like the ny which is already an n superimposed with a y 
superimposed then again onto an NY. We got a little like New York inception going on on this jersey. And I think that looks weird. And I wasn't. Did you see the Cubs one looks like a brontosaurus? I did not. That's exciting. I could go for the, more the dinosaur C jerseys. And the, uh, uh, the C and the H, like the H is sort of behind the the Cubs roundel. So it looks like you got the, the brontosaurus head and the the little legs coming down. But my question, and maybe this is just for Mike, because he's the one here who cares more about uniform aesthetics, is will these become nostalgically cool in 20 years? Oh, because 100%. I, yeah, I feel like every uniform, no matter how much it is derided when it initially comes out, becomes cool down the line. And I feel that way, too, with like old NBA jerseys, the in the 90s when you had like the actual rocket on the Houston Rockets jerseys or the the little dinosaur, speaking of dinosaurs, on the Toronto Raptors jerseys. And I think those are super cool, even though I think people mocked them at the time. But even these, which are so bad right now, you think those will still become part of like a vintage set 20 years down the line? Yeah, I think everything you need to know about that is answered by two things in, in baseball. One is how the Astros Tequila Sunrise jerseys were copied all throughout college baseball in the mid 2010s and how everybody and how when the Astros brought them back on throwback days, it was a huge, you know, a huge deal. And how excited everybody was when the Padres went back to Brown, like those uniforms suck shit at the time. And now everybody loves them and just because they're old. And this is why. And by the way, everybody who was I'm going to go back on one of the classic rants again. Everybody who was really excited for the Padres to go back to Brown didn't like the the uh, Diamondbacks bloody ankle pants. <laughs> and in 25 years, when every team brings back the, the color fade up the calf. I'll be vindicated if I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's like the turn ahead the clock jerseys right from from the 90s oh yeah, yeah. i was just gonna bring those up yeah mm-hmm. weren't those supposed to be for 2021 <laughs> are we or are we I... in the future now hmm. yeah it's, it's not as exciting as we thought it would be more than a few mets fans who would rather that team played on mercury yeah you're right it, it <laughs> in was past, it, in the intervening decades it was supposed to be set in the year 2021 well here we are in the exciting future yeah i think i care less about the idea that there should be kind of team uniforms for the all-star game because there's so little team spirit i think in that event like compared to past years where there was a real al nl rivalry now there isn't i mean players are constantly coming and going you've got interleague all year so i don't think there's any real league identity or sense of affiliation there And because of the way the MLP All-Star Game is managed, where guys are just coming in and out and you're trying to get everyone into the game and it's just sort of silly, you know, there are no longer stakes to the game, which is fine with me, but no one is really trying. So I think it it doesn't seem like a a team event to me. It doesn't seem like there's a, a lot of, I don't know, collective camaraderie or desire to bond together to beat the other team. So it seems more like a collection of stars who are coming together to have a fun time. And for that sort of event, it seems to make sense to me that you would just have them wear their local color so that the fans who are tuning in can say, hey, that's my guy. So no interleague play then. You two, I take this as you two also want the end of interleague play as I do. No, I'm okay with the wild card and interleague play if we want to relitigate decades old baseball debates. These turn ahead the clock jerseys are awesome. Bring those back. They they look so garish. <laughs> I want to see those for a week. Like I, we have players weekend now, right? Where 
players can put the fun nicknames on the back of their jerseys. Have a turn ahead the clock weekend because these are. You want to have a Mariners logo on the front of the jersey that's three times the size of the actual jersey, so you can only see a quarter uh, just of a, it. Like that's a what you're giant after? Astros logo that goes from like abdomen down to where the players would be pulling off their pants at this point. Exactly. See, you've fallen into the nostalgia trap. Anything old is retro. You don't even rem- Zach doesn't even <laughs> remember the nineties. Like this isn't this 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 might as well be like Stuffy McGinnis might as well have worn these jerseys. As there far is as a he's distinction. Concerned. The distinction is that I legitimately think like the Astros. Sunrise jerseys are cool. I do not think these are cool, but they're like a a movie that's so bad you enjoy it because you just laugh the whole time. That's how I feel about these turn ahead the clock jerseys. Ironic nostalgia is a slippery slope. You could just say you like it. Like, I'll judge you, but it's like, it'll be fine. You could be nostalgic for a a time before you were born or before you formed memories, right? I think that's okay. I I am. I think... (laughs) I think that sentiment animates a large part of the current American political (laughs) landscape right now. So I'm not going to argue with you there. Uh, Speaking of animation, the home run derby field is starting to take shape. Uh, We are going to see to great hosannas in this in in this podcast, uh, Shohei Otani and Big Pete Alonzo caught for jorts. For those of you speaking of baseball becoming dangerously horny, the Pete Alonzo all-star game. Jorts commercial uh, is something to behold. We're not going to see uh, El Gary and Vladito in the home run derby. Uh, Zach, you wanted to to pose a question to us about the home run derby lineup. Yeah, so I think Otani would have probably been our collective first choice. Maybe not Mike if he's extending his hater. No, bit I want as- Jay Cronenworth. Is the, <laughs> you know, if Otani could do it, Cronenworth can do it better. Yeah, Otani would have been, I think, my obvious first choice to be in the home run derby. And I want to know what your ideal field would end up looking like. I think the home run derby is maybe more than anything else, the greatest innovation of the Manfred era since they moved to a bracket with timed rounds instead of number of outs. It is legitimately exciting. I, even as a huge baseball fan, would not watch the home run derby every year. I watched like the Josh Hamilton year, but every year it wasn't uh, an automatic event to go on my television. Now it is. Now it's a really exciting couple of hours. And I think that offers MLB an opportunity to expose its prospective stars to a lot more fans than watch an average game. I think that's one of the opportunities that Vlad had a couple years ago. That's an opportunity that Otani has this year if he goes on a run and could really elevate his his Q rating. And I want to know what other players you want to see get that potential boost. Yeah, Otani would obviously be number one with a bullet on my list, but I kind of want to pack my home run derby field with a bunch of beefy sluggers. Like they just seem like the quintessential home run derby dudes. So I will put in Kyle Schwarber, who has been conducting his own personal home run derby over the past week or so. And also Tyler O'Neill, because you, you need the the jack guy just jacking dingers at Coors Field. I think that would be fun. And some of the new faces of baseball, like I don't see why you wouldn't want Fernando Tatis Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. in this field. And I'd also want Nelson Cruz just to to have the old guy still got it in here and have the almost 20-year age range between the youngest and oldest guy in the derby. I think Aaron Judge has said that he wouldn't want to participate as long as the Derby is not in New York, but I will take John Carlos Stanton because he has put on previous shows in the Home Run Derby, and you have to have one huge guy who hits the ball harder and farther than anyone else in the world. So 
I think that takes me to seven and maybe I'd go Matt Olson with the last one because he deserves it. And apologies to Rockies fans for not having a, a hometown favorite in here. I, I do think it's nice when you can have someone from the, the local park playing in front of the hometown fans, but who am I going to get excited about in this Rockies lineup? Can we just put Nolan Arnato in there just to remind all the Rockies fans what they're missing? Like, I guess Ryan McMahon has hit some homers this year. I'm just not that excited about seeing Ryan McMahon I'm here. Dying and at I the, guess, at I guess put the, put Nolan Arenado <laughs> in the Derby to remind Rockies fans what they're missing. <laughs> <laughs> or put Trevor story in there to remind them about what they're about to be missing. <laughs> yeah, sto- story is going to be in the story is going to be in the home run derby after the Rockies trade him on July 9th. Right, <laughs> you just <laughs> please yeah. come back. My wife left me. Like this is <laughs> such divorced guy vibes from Nolan Arenado. Being the, <laughs> let's put Nolan Arenado in in the derby to to remind Rockies fans of what they're missing. <laughs> so I like a lot of your picks, Ben. Nelson Cruz is a good one who wasn't on my list, but the old guys still got it. Factor is a really fun one. I have a, a semi-Rockies connection for one of the picks I wanted to add. Bo Bichette, who, I thought who about whose that. father, Dante, interesting, was, yeah. was fantastic uh, for the Rockies in the night as well. Not necessarily fantastic, depending on if you look at advanced metrics versus traditional metrics, but he hit 40 home runs leading the league in 1995. And I think that would be a fun little hometown connection. I'm sure the Rockies fans who are in attendance would get behind Bo now hitting for Toronto and you know I feel bad offending Bo saying I would put him behind Wander Franco at the beginning of this episode so I'm going to give him some credit here because he's been great and I think getting as many of the 25 under 25 players we talked about a couple weeks ago in the derby would be a really great thing for baseball as it tries to market the next generation of stars put Acuna in put Tatis in put Juan Soto in even though he is not as much of a traditional power bat as he is like a power plus patience guy and you don't take pitches in the derby but i think he certainly has enough power to compete and the only other factor that kind of elevates these players and especially if stanton were to join or something is that they are playing in colorado and the ability to really test the the distance that they can go 500 plus feet in the thin air up there uh could add even more fireworks yeah you guys hit most what i'm looking for in a in a home run derby lineup is the potential for those breakout moments so you know Vlad is as a rookie putting on the show he put on a couple years ago. I think it's the the ideal of this. Most of the guys that I want, I don't necessarily want like LeBron in the dunk contest every year, but I want most of those stars to have a chance to have that one big moment where they make a big run or put up a huge round or win the title. You know, so like the guys that I would want to watch hit home runs, a lot of them have already had it, you know. Guerrero, Bryce Harper, uh, who won on home soil in Washington a couple years ago, Pete Alonso, who won the Derby, you know, now that Otani's going to be in there or judge one that, you know, put on, put on that big show in Miami. Um, now that Otani's in it, like there's going to be so much expectation about him. Uh, I think, you know, he's one of the guys that I, you know, I really want to see him stretch his legs a little bit, but some of the players who we haven't, uh, really seen either get offered that chance or or take that chance. I think guys like Carlos Correa um, and also Mike Trout, like if he's going to, if he's evolving, I, don't know, I guess he's always been like an elite power hitter, but if he's evolving into less of a five tool guy and more of a, a patience and power type, is, is he 
gets through his thirties, like I would like, he hasn't performed on this stage yet. And I, I think there's, it would be cool to see, you know, the game's best player on its biggest showcase moment. I also want to throw out uh, Albert Pujols as another old guy. Still got it option. He is slugging nearly 500 since joining the Dodgers. He, he did this. Albert Pujols did the did the farewell tour in the Home Run Derby six years ago. That's how old Albert he Pujols first participated in the Home Run <laughs> Derby in 2003. I would love to see him come back for one last chance. Just yeah, you know, make him the eight seed. Have him go up against like Tatis in the first round, and we'll see if the old guy can pull off the upset and add to the Dodgers Padres rivalry. You've got guys like Gary, you know Gary Sanchez saying, and it, like people make fun of this, but I think it's quite reasonable. Uh, given how fast paced the Derby is now that like it takes a lot out of you if you make a run in the uh, in the Derby. And I'm just imagining Albert Pujols who like who moves like the tectonic plates now, like if he goes through three rounds of the Derby, they're going to have to put him in traction for a month. Like, <laughs> you think he's going to exhaust all of his energy and just fade away like Luke at the end of The Last Jedi? Yeah, well, I don't think he's going to disappear. Or you know, pro- astral project his, himself with his lightsaber to a foreign planet. I think that's a, a wildly optimistic uh, appraisal of his power at this point in his career. I just worry about his health. Like you don't move the way that that you used to once you're in your forties. All right, let's uh, wrap up the show. We're getting up over the fifty minute mark with the unnamed weekend preview segment, and I'm gonna go first. Because I actually don't my game of the weekend. I don't know if it's going to be relevant because uh, Vanderbilt is playing NC State in the final four in the College World Series. This is an elimination round to go to the the national championship series. So NC State has to win once to advance. Vanderbilt has to win twice. Um, so they're playing at 2 p.m. on Friday, which is after we record, but likely before this is going to um before this is going to run. So Vanderbilt needs to win in order to, to force an extra game. These two teams faced off earlier this week uh, in a winner's bracket game. Jack Leiter started, went, <clears throat> went eight innings, struck out 15, allowed four hits, but one of them was a solo home run for the game's only run. Uh, Vanderbilt is is uh, obviously the pitching powerhouse. You're going to have two pitchers selected in the top 10. NC State, there was no, like, no Kent State, no Stony Brook in no real Cinderella team in this year's college world series field. The closest that you can come is NC state, which started the season nine and 11. They lost eight of their first nine games in, in the, uh, in the ACC, uh, and have ended up going on this incredible run and are now one game away or perhaps already in the college world series final, uh, as you listen to this. So that's my, my matchup of the week, Zach, where are you going? I am going to New York, where the Phillies play the Mets. The Mets are still... Must you? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> the Mets are still up ahead in the NL East, even amid all the drama. They are the only team with a winning record in the division. The Phillies had gotten up to 500 and then lost three in a row. They are five games back, but they have a, a big series this weekend, including a doubleheader on Friday. And I think... Like at some point, I expect one of these other National League East teams to make a run. My money would be on Atlanta there, but the Nationals are now up to 500 with a five game winning streak. The Phillies could get 
above that with a, a really good series this weekend. And I just, I, <laughs> I just don't think the Mets are well-rounded enough as a team to just run away with this division wire to wire. So I'm watching kind of all of these series, even the Marlins who are well back still have a positive run differential, which is more than the Phillies and Atlanta and Washington can say. So basically all of these interdivisional series are interesting to me and Phillies Mets series of the weekend. Wow. Huh. I'm a Mets believer, but I just, I can't believe you surveyed all the series taking place this weekend and you decided I'm going to tell people to watch the Phillies. That's just cruel. I think uh, Bauman took mine. I was going to go with NC State. Oh, obviously. I thought you were going to go with Mississippi State versus Texas. Yeah, considered it, considered it. But no, I uh, there are a couple of pretty good rivalry series uh, aside from Phillies-Mets this weekend. I mean, you've got Yankees-Red Sox, which is not the rivalry that it once was, but there's a little juice to it these days. I mean, the Yankees are uh, three back in the last column of the Red Sox right now, so they could basically erase that deficit this weekend if they had a good series. They've been playing pretty well of late. So that's interesting. And then you've got the Bay Area Giants-A's matchup, which that's the the head-to-head of the two teams that we talked about, was it last week, both exceeding their expectations? And the Giants have kept up that pace, still maintaining their lead over the Dodgers. The A's have slipped behind the Astros, who never lose anymore. And I don't really see them unseating Houston at the top of that division, but still certainly a strong wildcard contender. So there's some stakes there, as well as the natural rivalry. So feel free to watch the Phillies if you want, but uh, I probably will not be. The other series I want to shout out is Arizona visiting San Diego. Not necessarily because I think this series will be competitive, but because Arizona on the road has kind of reached a much watch status, much like you rubberneck on a highway, because Arizona has lost 23 consecutive road games and now has a three-game series against the Padres. That is already an MLB record. They have three against the Padres, three against the Cardinals, then uh, in a couple weeks, three against the Dodgers to take them into the All-Star break. Can they get to 29 road losses in a row entering the All-Star break? Probably not, but it's not like they're going to be favored in any of the games this weekend. Uh, Speaking of Arizona-San Diego, I actually meant to bring this up. There was college baseball news on the front page of ESPN.com last night as I was putting together the rundown. LSU has hired Arizona head coach Jay Johnson to fill their vacancy. This like this is for my money the most or the best job in college baseball. And they've gone to the West Coast. Uh, Jay Johnson has been to two College World Series with Arizona. Before that, he was an assistant at the University of San Diego, where he was the hitting coach to one Chris Bryant in uh, his college years. Uh, he served under Actually, San Diego has a vacancy now because their head coach, Rich Hill, has moved on to to Hawaii. So there's a guy who knows how how to pick a place to work, Uh, San Diego for 23 years and then University of Hawaii. So very interesting times in Baton Rouge. Uh, Ben, your thoughts? (laughs) Congrats to him or condolences, whichever is more appropriate. Sounds like congrats. Wow, you just really did the... The not reading all this, but yes, congrats or sorry for. that happened in real <laughs> Pretty life. Much. Yep. <laughs> all right. That'll just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Mike Wargon for producing today's episode. Thanks to Craig Kimbrell, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, and Jay Johnson for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time. 